chapter 8. And let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we pray, Lord, that that this time we've set aside for you that you would intervene here and we pray, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. We pray that each one of us would be strengthened, encouraged, and edified in the Word, that our faith would be built, and that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, When I went to college, I had, uh, I had a, a roommate from Boston. And having grown up in a town of 300 people in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, I had never hardly talked to anybody from a city of more than about a thousand people. I learned something from him and his friends that words can mean different things to different people. There were idioms and phrases and figures of speech that people in urban Boston (laughs) used that had a very different meaning than the words that I used growing up middle of Nebraska. The Bible is a little bit similar. This book was written through the Jewish mind by Jewish people and at the and to Jewish people. And because of that, there are phrases, there are idioms, there are figures of speech that their culture was used to where if you said a certain phrase, that person would understand exactly. They have an entire image, a picture in their head of maybe an entire event where we as Americans can read a Bible verse and that phrase is in there and it means absolutely nothing to us. Maybe we think it's poetry, it just sounds like it's something that rolls off the tongue well, but there's very likely an entire story behind it. In John chapter 8, Jesus has a heated discussion with some Jewish leaders. And they go back and forth about uh, where Jesus came from and Jesus throws things back at them about what their authority is. And we're, we'll hit different things here, but hopefully it'll kind of tie itself together. In John chapter 8, look at verse 19. Then they said unto him, Where is thy father? And of course remember the, the way that Jesus grew up in his beginning, how he came into this world. I think it's fair to assume that most the people surrounding him growing up knew that his mother had not probably known Joseph, and yet there she is. She's pregnant. Jesus may very well have grown up with certain language being thrown at him, that he was without a father. I'm not sure if that's what they mean here when they ask him. But they are talking a little bit about authority. And they say, and uh, Jesus answered in verse 19, Ye neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. From here to the end of the chapter, it's going to go back and forth between these groups of people, Jesus and the Jews, and they're talking about his father. And Jesus keeps pointing the relationship and including himself in the discussion that he is not just related to the father, but that they're... They're one. And of course, you can imagine the Jewish people have some very difficult, they have some trouble with that. Verse 20, These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. That verse says he was teaching in the temple. 
there was always somewhat of a captive audience around there. You were required by their law to appear at the temple certain times uh, of maybe the week, the month, especially the year, to offer sacrifices. And because of that, there's always a crowd there. There was an enormous, the, the pool of Siloam, when we read in the Gospels, Jesus did some miracles there. And the reason it records he did miracles there is there was always a lot of people there. Before you could go into the temple, you couldn't just come off the grain cart and then walk in there all dusty and sweaty. You had to be ritually cleansed. And there's not much water over there. That entire country is nothing but rocks, mountains of rocks. And the few springs that there are, they diverted one into this enormous that they made a pool of Siloam. So there's always fresh water flowing in there. And the hundreds, on some days, thousands of people that had to go to the temple that day, they first dipped themselves in, they came out the other side of the pool, and they walked up these long steps way up to the temple because you had to be cleansed. The, the priest that was there at the, the pool, he would hand them a token when they came out to, so that they could show the priest at the top of the steps where the temple was that here you are, I went through the ritual bath, I've been cleansed. That's what they've now found over in Israel in excavating. They found these tokens that were handed out. As you can imagine, there was a lot of them. There was a lot needed. So anyway, Jesus has this captive audience. Here he is in the temple. Other times he is just down the hill about 200 yards in that pool of Siloam area, and that's why he was healing blind men down there. The lame people congregated around there. The end of this verse says that even though he said something that really dis, they disliked, look at that phrase, they did not lay hands on him. Why? His hour was not yet come. What does that imply? His hour was not yet come. That implies that there, ha- there is some special set-aside time for Jesus to do something. This, of course, is being written after he's died, after he's been resurrected, looking back on the situation. At that time, those disciples very likely didn't know that the reason they're not grabbing him and throwing him over a hill is because his time isn't come yet. But they did understand later. Think of that. His time was not yet come. God had and still does in the future. Yet he has specific times for certain events that will transpire. It's a, you learn something about our God if you start to, to pick that up in the Scriptures that, that God does have things like that. That doesn't mean that God set aside me and Jennifer to meet. I'm not necessarily saying that. We have choices in these things. But His overall plan of salvation, He has certain events that were going to take place. This idea that Jesus was not allowed to be pressured in anything or threatened just yet because God had designed this. His hour was not yet come. Verse 27. Uh, excuse me, verse 24. Jesus talking to them, He said, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Can you imagine being told something worse than that, that the Son of God, who's kind of in control of these things, is 
openly declaring, you guys are going to die in your sins. That means they will spend eternity away from God. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have a choice. Jesus, being omnipotent, he knows their choices. Many times in the Bible it tells that Jesus knew the thoughts of people. That's, a, that's something to, to think about there. Verse 25, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? See, the, the conversation, the, the tenor of it is building. Jesus is now telling them that you're going to die in your sins. You're not going to heaven. It's escalating. They then ask, Who art thou? And Jesus says unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. What does that indicate? Sometimes here in today's debates, that Jesus never said that he was God. That Jesus never claimed to be anything special. That we, many centuries later, are putting that on him. He was just a teacher. They tell us he was just a philosopher. He himself never even claimed to be God. Well, what's this verse saying? When the discussion gets heated and he tells them they're not going to heaven, they ask, well, who are you? He responds by saying, I'm the same person that I have been telling you over and over. That indicates a repetition. Many different times he has told them about who he is. And the previous verse said, the reason you're going to die in your sins is you guys don't believe that I am he. Who's the he? That promised Messiah. If you can't figure that out, there was a terrible judgment for them. Think of that. He said many times, he's even, Jesus, you'll see in this, he gets tired of answering this question. He doesn't give up. He keeps, he keeps telling the truth right back at them. Skip down to verse 33. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed. They're going back and forth about who each other are. And in their words or their minds, they are clinging to this thought that we are Abraham's seed or his progeny. We were never in bondage to any man. How do you say that ye shall be made free? In their minds, you get a glimpse throughout the Gospels that the Jews were very secure in their own thought process that we're Abraham's kids and that's all we need. You know, the Bible here and Jesus in this chapter clearly teaches that just because you're Abraham's kids, and, and that's, a, that's a great thing, that doesn't make you righteous with God. Jesus has already declared to them they're going to die in their sins. What does that indicate? That infers that just being born of the covenant lineage of the Jews, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. He clearly told them, you guys are not going to accept me. And that indicates that what? That they are required to accept Jesus as their Savior. You'll hear some places in the world today that the Jews don't need to accept Christ. Not according to Jesus. He didn't agree with that idea. He's clearly telling them you have to. They, they, they don't get to heaven based on their relationship to Abraham. It's a wonderful thing. That does not make them righteous in the sin world. The only thing that cleanses sin is the shedding of blood. And once Jesus shed his blood, it's blasphemous to try to sacrifice something better. So 
They tell him that we're Abraham's seed. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Verily I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin, he's drawing the attention back to we're all sinners. That person is a servant of sin. Then he says that the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son does. That's a position of authority. Jesus is saying, I'm the son. The son does abide in the house, and the son that way gets to make some decisions. The next verse, next couple of verses are very important. He says that, verse 36, If the son shall therefore make you free, you shall be free indeed. He's of course speaking that through him, the son of God, the shed his blood, makes atonement for sin. He draws that picture that a servant doesn't really have the authority. But a son, that means he's an heir to the throne. The son has this authority. Look at throughout this entire discussion, Jesus keeps speaking with them about his relationship with the Father. What is their responses? It's always, we're Abraham's kids. They're always, in their mind, we belong to Abraham, that makes us fine. And Jesus keeps going back to I'm from the Father. The only way that you get to the Father is through the Son, through the sacrifice of the Lamb. It's not just by being Abraham's seed. The, 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 the story of the Old Testament, what was the purpose of Abraham's seed then? If we just stop here and step away for a couple of minutes. <clears throat> God used that lineage, those, that seed line, to get the Messiah here to the earth. It starts at the very beginning. Even before there's Abraham in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin and God shows up, what happened here? They all give their side and God says to the serpent and he speaks to Adam and Eve. He says that the seed of the woman is one day going to crush his head but that the serpent would bite his heel. It's a very faint but it is a picture of crushing the serpent through some type of painful act that the serpent would grab on, he would get some fang marks in his heel, but compared to the crushing that he would take, the crucifixion of Jesus was in the spiritual realm. He wins. It's a big. He, he wins that trade-off. So the entire history of the Old Testament is Satan always trying to kill that seed. Think back to Moses' time. There's all these stories. Well, let's start at the very beginning. As soon as God tells Adam and Eve and the serpent, Satan, someday there's going to come a seed of the woman. And maybe we should look at that. The seed of a woman? I, I know enough biology that the woman doesn't have seed. Why would God say that? It's the man that has seed. So why would he indicate the seed of the woman? I'll tell you what jumps to my mind. That's in a picture of the virgin birth. The seed of the woman. Forget it. At Cain and Abel. <clears throat> as soon as that happens, as soon as that discussion takes over, you flip the page and what happens? Cain rises up and he kills Abel. Maybe that's Satan trying to kill Abel, the seed of the woman, where someday something's going to come through to crush him. You just keep going down the line. When Moses, all of those Jewish, those Israelite kids are being drowned in the Nile River, 
God makes sure that Moses is somehow delivered. He comes back and he leads that entire nation out. The Old Testament has a bunch of stories where all the kids are killed of a royal lineage, except one of them was out that day and they didn't get it. Even think all the way into Jesus' time. Herod had all the kids, two years and younger, destroyed, trying to kill that seed. I, I now think of that, that's Satan. Yeah, Herod was a ridiculously cruel person. But that's Satan's desire. He's trying to destroy that seed. So here in John 8, the Jewish people keep telling we're Abraham's kids. Again, that's a great thing. But God used Abraham's seed as a vessel to get the Messiah into the earth. It's not that Abraham's lineage doesn't need salvation. They do. Every Jewish person that came to Jesus in the Gospels, he, when he, he witnessed to them, he told Nicodemus, who was a Jewish leader, you must be born again. You have to. Verse 38. I speak that which I have seen with my father. And you do that which you have seen with your father. Now, Jesus is drawing a, there's a branch here in the genealogy tree. or uh, he's, he's making a distinction from where he came from and where they come from. To think, calls the, he says that the Jews, you have a different father than I do. This gets very interesting. This is where Jesus introduces this idea that we are not all children of God. That phrase gets thrown around in American church circles like crazy. And it, it makes everybody think that, well, God, He's happy with all of us. doesn't matter what we do, what we believe, what we say. God looks at us all the same. I mean, after all, He's fair. God is love, so He must love us all the same. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus here speaking to these people as this conversation gets back and forth and it gets more heated and more heated, Jesus is now on to saying, uh, you're of your father the devil. That's the next, uh, look at verse 40, let's see, let's see, verse 39, they answered, said unto him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, your behavior. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Verse 41. You do the deeds of your father. Again. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father... You would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Look at the question he asks rhetorically in verse 43. Why do you not understand my speech? And he answers his question, even because you can't hear my word. Boy, that is a dangerous place to be in. If your mind is clouded, if your eyes are darkened, There's a title to a book, The Closing of the American Mind. 
I know a little bit about it. I haven't read it all. I don't think all the conclusions are the great, the best, but over time, the things that have gone in American culture, there are so many truths that we have closed our mind to. We don't even, we're not even a thinking people. And this is what Jesus is describing here. These guys, he says, can't even hear his words. Verse 44 comes right out and says it. You are of your father, the devil. I am quite certain that that verse has never been preached on in 80%, I'll say, churches. The image that people have of Jesus, he would, he would never say something like that. He not only said something like that, he said it to his Jewish brethren. Why? Because their behavior, their beliefs were so screwed up. You are of your father, the devil. So we can put to rest the idea that Jesus thinks we're all God's children. He doesn't. We're not all God's kids. That implies a relationship. I may have some very good, close friends that of teenagers, but they're not my kids. My children have a different relationship with me than somebody I might even be mentoring. Somebody I might be close with. Have a very good relationship. But it's different if you're my child. You have certain privileges, certain expectations of their father that other people wouldn't have. And Jesus tells these guys they are of their father, the devil. He goes on to talk about the lusts of your father, he was a murderer from the beginning. Brings back Cain and Abel to my mind. And abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. I want to now skip down. <clears throat> and you can see how this conversation started, how it's escalating. He is now up. First of all, he told him, you guys aren't going to heaven. You're going to die in your sins because you don't think I'm the Christ. It then moves up to, you guys are kind of illegitimate. Or you think that I am, but being Abraham's kids doesn't mean much. In fact, you are the children of the devil. And it now moves up into something where Jesus is going to point himself in a certain line of truth that they can't handle. At verse 53, they ask him, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets which are dead, who do you make yourself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Does any of this conversation make you think that there are a lot of people that think they know who Jesus is and they would never picture him saying these kind of things? How many times has he called them a liar? How many times has he called them murderers? How many times has he called them children of the living devil? He, he is not scared of the truth. He talked this way. Now, I'm not trying to tell people, we have to tell everybody we see you're a child of the devil. I'm simply saying that don't gloss over the truth thinking, well, Jesus was, quote, love, and so we can't ever say the truth. Completely unbiblical. 
completely unbiblical. We do say the truth, but we say it in love. Now, in verse 56, Jesus is pulling an ace of spades out of his back pocket and he is playing the trump card. They keep telling him about Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And he says in verse 56, Your father Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. We looked at that verse maybe a couple weeks ago, some time ago, where we looked at the picture that was painted in Genesis 22 when Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him and how Abraham, up on that mountain, he made this declaration. Once the knife was going down and the angel stopped him and there was a ram caught and he brought the ram over and put it in place and his son was spared. He called that place Jehovah-Jireh. He says, comma, in the mount of the Lord, right where he's standing, in this mountain, it shall be seen of the Lord. And we looked at how What is the it? That it shall be seen. Abraham somehow, some way, God showed him what would take place on that mountain with Jesus. And see, Jesus even backs it up here. You get all the way into Jesus' time and he's in this heated discussion. He says, your father Abraham, he saw my day. I don't think that means he saw the day I was born. He saw my day. He was glad and he rejoiced. Remember what Abraham was doing on that mountain when God showed him something. Abraham would say the words that it will be seen on this mountain. He had just offered to sacrifice his own son Isaac right there. God shows him something. You don't have to do this. And he then says God's going to provide himself a sacrifice. And he says that it will be seen right here. And we know that that Mount Moriah... Wherever the exact spot of where Jesus' cross went in the ground, I'm telling you, it was a hundred yards away, probably at the most, from where Isaac was sacrificed. That place over there in Israel is small. Mount Moriah, it's the same place where the temple was. Jesus is telling these guys that your father Abraham, way back in time, what did God do? He showed Abraham a picture of my day. Now, what does that imply? about God's plan. Did Jesus just happen to show up out of nowhere? Did his life transpire just because certain events unfolded through the chances of time? It implies that God had a plan from the very beginning. Keep finger here. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. If Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, if God showed Abraham what he was going to do, doesn't that tell us something about God's planning? That it was in the works? Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now that verse is talking about something else, but it includes some information. That the idea that the lamb would be slain, when did that occur? When did that start? That sucker, that idea originated before Adam and Eve were ever even created. It says in that verse that that lamb 
was slain from the foundation of the world. That when God started all of creation, He already had the plan of salvation. You hear people today, we have this relative thinking that goes something like this. If God is such a loving God, these are atheists talking, they're trying to prove that there isn't a loving God. If God is such a loving God, why would He even make man if He knew they were going to sin and, and die and create all this misery like this? So that just proves that, that there, there is no God that you people speak of. Well, our Bible tells us that He did know what they were going to do. and You can ask Him about it someday if you'd like. But His plan was to, to have this from the or very origination of creation. Don't care if they sin. Well, He cares if they sin. It's almost as if God wants to incorporate this plan into the earth. God loves, He protects this plan throughout the entire Old Testament. He makes sure that it happens exactly as He said it would happen. He taps the reader, the writer, on the shoulder throughout the New Testament saying, tell the reader, I told him about this before. As it is written of the prophet." All this was done that it might be fulfilled by the prophet. God seems to enjoy playing this plan out. But these, This verse in Revelation tells us that God had this from the beginning. Nothing surprised Him. So when Jesus tells those Jews, Abraham saw my day, is it a little easier to accept the fact that, you know what? When Abraham was up there going to sacrifice his son, God really did show Abraham 2,000 years into the future that someday on that same spot God would sacrifice His Son. Now, I'm going somewhere with this idea. 2,000 years before Jesus, that plan was not only in effect, God chose, He wanted to show somebody, His friend, Abraham, about it. That means throughout these 4,000 years of the Old Testament, God's working this plan. When you get to Jesus' time, look at what the Jewish people throw at Him next. Look at verse 57. Then said the Jews unto Him, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? They're saying, There's no way you knew Abraham. You're not even 50 yet. He lived 2,000 years ago. Look at Jesus' response here. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now what does that phrase, I am, mean to somebody who reads the Bible? Any bells going off in your head? Where have you heard that phrase? There's a very famous story in the Bible that Jesus is referencing. This is what I meant by comparing a Boston roommate's use of language. When Jesus said, before Abraham even was, before he even existed, I am. That's not just poetic language that means, well, that's kind of present tense and that's God's way of saying. It may, that may be true. But what is Jesus specifically talking about? Turn to Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3, Moses, he has fled Egypt. He has 
he is now tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. And God has a plan for Moses' life. Through a miracle, he saved his life from drowning. Moses is now out in the wilderness, and he is going to send Moses back to Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is on the mountain. In verse 2, An angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Moses turns aside to look at it. And God starts to talk to Moses out of a burning bush to say, you're going back. And Moses gives all kinds of excuses. Who wouldn't? Because the, the, the people, my people, won't even listen to me. He said, I've got a stuttering problem. And God gets angry with him. He said, quit making excuses. Your brother Aaron, who's a great speaker, I'll send him with you. But you're going back. And finally Moses says, how in the world are they ever going to believe me? What do I tell the Hebrews when I get there? How would they believe me? I fled. I have been gone for 40 years. Why would they follow me? And where is it? Verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me, they shall say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say unto them? God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. When you understand this story in the Bible, now when you read Jesus in John chapter 8 and he tells those Jewish people, that they, they are shocked because Jesus has just told them, Abraham even knows about me. He saw me. He saw the day that I'm going to die here. And they say, you're nuts. It, Jesus responds that even before Abraham ever existed, I am. And we read that in our American mind and we think, he is very poetic. How did he come up with it? He didn't come up with it. As usual, he is quoting something that has happened in the Old Testament. Those Jewish people, do you think they knew what he was talking about? Look at the last verse in John chapter 8. After Jesus says, I am, look at verse 59. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, they were going to kill him. I want to draw your attention. That's why I was pointing this out the whole way. This conversation started out with them calling each other not very nice names. You're a liar. You're a murderer. You're of your father the devil. He called him the devil's kids. At no time did they pick up stones and try to kill him then. It just kept getting more heated. Not until he references this thought that before Abraham ever even existed, and he uses the phrase, I am. What do you think those Jewish people thought when they heard him say, I am? They're thinking that Moses, our best prophet ever, that he got the law from this guy? Because that's what Jesus was saying. It doesn't say that in black and white, but you put the stories together. God is painting the picture that his son, Jesus, who is just a, a manifestation of the Trinity, one part of it, 
that he has existed from the very beginning. Why do I bring... Why, I mean, I, I, have, I am admittedly hitting this same nail over and over. Because we have this thing in our culture where people think that there is a God of the Old Testament that existed a long time, and then, just by chance, there's this teacher, this philosopher, born under some crazy circumstances over in Israel about 2,000 years ago, and he now taught us something different. And those two gods, the God of the Old Testament... And Jesus in the New Testament, they're two separate entities. You see how crazy that thought is? It's ridiculous. It is so unbiblical. And what that false thinking leads to, it leads to conclusions like this. Well, I know that God said some condemning things about certain behaviors in the Old Testament, but Jesus never said anything about it in the New Testament. So he, he's probably okay with it. When you separate Jesus and the Father. In this entire chapter, is Jesus saying, me and the Father were the same person. It now becomes ridiculous to try to say that the God of the Old Testament, who, didn't come, who obviously disapproved of homosexuality, who even destroyed entire nations, cultures, he didn't leave anything behind. And there's a reason for that. There was... Terrible things going on in those places. That entity in the Old Testament, by Jesus' own admission, is Jesus. Can't separate it. God the Father and the Son are one and the same. This is how the book of John starts. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. The, if you separate Jesus from the Father and that they believe separate things, they both promote exclusive things, that one is mean and one is nice and cuddly, you are getting a false image of the God of the Bible. It's a it's very much a modern falsehood that is really spread when Jesus told those guys that before Abraham even existed, because they didn't believe, well, how could you ever have known Abraham? He was that long ago. Before Abraham ever was, he said, I am. He is that person. When you start to think this way, now some things start to come together. Think of with me of some Old Testament stories. Remember when the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, got thrown in the fire. And those Babylonians, they're looking in that fire and they're, they're shocked. Not only are they not laying down consumed in the fire, they're walking around, they're probably doing a little dance. They're shocked. And one of them says, Sir, there's a fourth man in the fire. And what does he look like? He looks to be the Son of God. Jesus was back there. When Joshua goes to enter the promised land and he has his sword out and he sees this person with a flaming sword, do you remember what that person said to Joshua? Joshua said, are you with us or against us? And that person said, I am the captain of the host. It's a high title. <clears throat> and he told Joshua to do what? Take the sandals off your feet where you're standing is holy ground. Now, if that is an angel, 
That's a different acting angel than we've ever seen in the Bible. Because Joshua fell down and worshipped him. You'll never, in the Bible, see where an angel allows themselves to be worshipped. That entity did. You go to the book of Revelation where John, he's taken in a vision and he goes to, to, to heaven. Every person that he meets to talk to and they, they say, look at those trumpets, look at those vials full of wrath. As he talks to them, what does he do? He falls down to worship them and what do they all say? They reach down, they pick him up and they say, do not worship me. I'm as one of your fellow brethren. That guy in Joshua, he didn't say that. I'm the captain of the host of the Lord's armies, and you better take the shoes, the sandals off your feet, because where you're standing is holy. I think that's Jesus. We know that Jesus, from the very foundation of the world, was in the Old Testament. I am that I am. There are <clears throat> some things that can be dispelled in our modern culture if you approach the Bible that it is one cohesive unit from the first page to the last. The, we separate it with, by the words the old and the new because the, even the, the book of Hebrews teaches us there is something old about it and there is something new about it. There is an old covenant and an old agreement that God has with mankind <clears throat> and there's a new one. But it doesn't mean that the God who is making this agreement has changed or that he's different or that they're separated. The old covenant that he had, it was a little outdated and we got a better covenant in the new. But it doesn't mean that there is a, quote, God of the Old Testament and there's somebody different who is the God of the New Testament. When Jesus finally told those guys that before Abraham ever existed, I am. And those Jewish people knew he's talking about Moses. That's where we get our law. That's where we get our Ten Commandments, the tablets. They picked up stones and they were finally going to kill him. Why? Because at the end of that chapter, Jesus had made himself eternal. He's telling them, <clears throat> you keep asking me about the authority I have to do what I have? Well, the authority is I'm the creator of the universe. And I was here from the very beginning. And that is when they picked up stones and they'd had enough. They were going to kill him. Calling them the children of the devil didn't cause them to do that. Calling them liars, murderers, didn't cause that. Once Jesus made himself to be from the very beginning, that he was there in Genesis 1, that he was through all those lineage of the Old Testament, that's when they hated him the most. Father, we pray, Lord, <clears throat> that once again the we would be open to your word and your word would be open to us. We pray that <clears throat> as we study your word that you would continue to teach us the truth about who you are, that you would enshrine that truth in our hearts and each one of us, that we would become bolder in Jesus' name. Father, guard and protect Pastor and Tiff. Give them favor. Help them to meet people over there that they can have relationships with for the rest of their life. We pray, Lord, that you would guard and protect them. Keep them with all diligence in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>